So now we are in a new series on relationships and why they matter. And we're looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, Valentine's Day is this Tuesday. Guys, hint, hint, reminder, put that out there. So uh, what we want to do is is think about relationships and think about love. And and last week, I basically ended the message by uh, sharing with you five qualities or characteristics of healthy relationships. And here's what they included. Honesty and trust because trust is the currency, right? Respect and mutual support, negotiation and fairness, non-threatening behavior, which is low levels of drama, and then intimacy and love. And so I left that with you at the end of the message last week. If you read the Bible, starting at the very beginning, the book of Genesis, what you will find is that the Bible is full of examples of family dysfunction, okay? Family dysfunction. So, you don't believe me? Listen to this list. Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. Noah gets off the ark, gets drunk, and passes out in front of his family. You remember that story? Isaac labors for seven years for Laban only to be given the wrong sister in marriage And so he had to labor seven more years to marry Rachel, the the woman that he loved, right? Jacob tricks his old blind father into giving him the birthright blessing that belonged to Esau. And it was actually actually set up by the mother. Joseph is thrown into a pit by his brothers because they were jealous that the father loved him and gave him the coat of many colors. And then they went and told their father, "A, a wild animal has killed our brother. Even Jesus gives us an example in the New Testament of family dysfunction with the parable of the prodigal son, where the younger son, you remember this, comes and asks for his inheritance early, and then he goes off to a foreign land and he squanders it on reckless living, and then years later, he comes back. They thought he was dead. He comes back, and the father is so happy to see him, throws him a big party, welcomes him home, kills the fatted calf, and the older brother is very angry, very resentful. He doesn't understand why the father would act that way. So all I'm trying to say to begin here is that the Bible is full of family dysfunction, and God uses that family dysfunction to teach us many valuable lessons and to redeem certain situations. As a minister, I have counseled and given pastoral care to many couples and and many different families over the years. Um, I've seen just about everything you can imagine, okay? When people come in and say, you're not going to believe what happened in our family, I usually say, just lay it on me, okay? I've heard and seen it all. But one thing that I've concluded over the years of ministry is that every single family has been through something hard. Something has happened, they've lost somebody, people are not on speaking terms, there's anger or resentment or hard feelings about the way that somebody's acted or behaved, there's alcohol abuse, drug abuse, somebody was hurt, somebody was excluded, somebody was a favorite child and they didn't feel like their parent loved them as much as their older sibling uh, or younger sibling. Divorce happens, and it's really hard, but it affects about 40 or 42% of marriages now. Um, Remarriages and and siblings can be difficult, 
everybody has a crazy uncle that they don't talk about and they don't want to be around. I have had two of them. One of them's passed away. One of them's still going. God bless both of them. You know what I'm talking about. Um, everybody, everybody has some type of family situation that they're just not going to tell people about, right? And so one of my jokes during, during the COVID years, yes, it was years, was how many people use COVID, even after it wasn't a threat, to prevent from having to get together with their family? I'd love to see you guys, but, you know, we're still being careful. You know, people did that at church, right? And then I told you, I saw them at Chuck E. Cheese. You know, you're still being careful, right? Still being careful. But here's what we can conclude. Family is complicated. It's not simple. Um, last week, I talked about unmet expectations in marriages. Remember, I told you Andy Stanley's concept of you have this big box of dreams and desires and wishes, and then you march down the aisle and turn it into expectations. And then in marriage, the, the hard thing to navigate is how do, you, how do you address those unmet expectations? Well, guess what? Same thing's true with family. Um, there are unmet expectations. People don't show up or they don't do the things that we think that they should do, and it causes hurt feelings. And, and sometimes families aren't very good at getting over it, forgiving and moving on. So, so when you have this conversation with other people, you, you find that healing is always happening in families on some level. Why? Because every family has hurt and stuff and things that they've been through. We all have that in common. And yes, certain situations are much more difficult than others. Now, in Colossians, Paul actually gives some basic instruction for families. First, he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Then he says, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But then a few verses later, Paul gets very specific when it comes to families. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. So why does Paul care so much about the roles of family and in families? Why did he write to the Colossians and to the Ephesians and to many other early church communities about what husbands and wives and mothers and fathers are supposed to do? I think it's because Paul knew how important family is. And he also knew how difficult and complicated family life can be. And yes, he wrote this in a context when Women were viewed as property. They did not have a voice or an influence. They were second-class citizens. But guess what? Jesus himself was the one who elevated the role of women. That was revolutionary in that day. And so when people come to Woodmont, they say, wow, you have, you have women ministers and you have women elders and women who are in leadership. And I say, yes. And we took that cue from Jesus. But Paul cared about the role of family because he knew how important it is. He also knew that if anybody is going to become a Christian at a young age, their parents and their family are going to play a big role in making that happen. So last night we had a dinner, five o'clock over at Campbell West, and then we came into the sanctuary 
um, to, to have a little orientation with the fifth graders and their parents. We have 48 fifth graders that we know of right now that are in our disciples class. We're not all here this morning, but a lot of them are. And, and, and they're gonna go through this journey over the next two months and they're gonna make their confession of faith and they're gonna be baptized at Woodmont the Sunday after, uh, after Easter. And so last night we, we basically kicked it off. But guess what? No matter what they learn in the class, no matter what they talk about with their mentors, you know what the best lesson is going to be in their lives? It's what their parents model. It's what their parents teach them and not just teach them, but actually live out so they can watch them. And, and so, so that is gonna be their primary example of faith. And so I think that Paul was just convinced that family is a big deal and, and, and nobody you know, really teaches us how to do this. I find this fascinating. I find it fascinating that we spend multiple years in school uh, to become a lawyer or a doctor or a preacher or a banker or whatever. Um, we spend all these years in school to learn about how to do our professions. Um, I was a religion major for four years at TCU, and then I went to Princeton Seminary and did three-year, 90-hour master's degree. And then once I got to Woodmont, I went and did five more years at Sewanee to get my doctorate so I could be a good preacher and a good minister. My wife, she actually went to school longer than I did. She had four years at UVA and four years of med school and three years at Hopkins and two years in Augusta to become a physician. But guess what? We don't teach people how to be a good husband and wife. We don't teach people how to be a good mother and father. We go through all this school to learn our profession, but when it comes to family life, when it comes to being a husband or wife, a mother or father, it's like, learn it as you go. Maybe talk to your parents if they didn't screw it up too bad and see what they think about it, right? That's how we learn that. And, and, and when it comes to being a Christian, husband and wife and a Christian mother and father, there, it seems like there might even be fewer resources for learning how to do that. But yet, this is such a big part of our lives. You know, we live in a culture that defines you by what you do. When you meet people, they say, what do you do? Oh, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, I'm a banker, I'm, a, I'm in real estate. Nobody says, hey, how's your character? Um, are you a good person? Do you love other people? Do you show compassion? Um, hey, nice to meet you. Are you two-faced? I'd like to know right now if you're two-faced, uh, just so I may not get that close to you. We learn this on our own. I think about David Brooks's model that I've talked about the last few years of the, the two mountains of life. Remember, he wrote the book about three or four years ago, and he said, you know, on the first mountain of life, we try to establish ourselves. We leave home. We get our education, we break away from our parents, we become independent, we start to build a career and work towards success. This is where upward mobility and economic opportunity are very important. So is survival, by the way. We wanna be respected by others. We wanna do things that will matter and, and, and we will be viewed as, as, as significant. On the first mountain, you know, there's a lot of keeping score. How do I measure up? How am I doing? What do other people think and say about me? Uh, on the first mountain, there's a lot of fear. Fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of being judged, fear of not measuring up, fear of not gaining the respect and recognition that we want. Uh, ego plays a big role on the first mountain. Uh, ego drives us to be successful, but it also drives our disappointment when we're not respected the way that we feel like we should be. Then he says there's this shift, and some people make it in the middle of life, and some people make it later in life, and some people never make it. But he calls it the second mountain. 
And he said the second mountain is, is basically about this. If the first mountain is about building up the ego and defining the self, the second mountain is about shedding the ego and losing the self. If the first mountain is about acquisition, the second mountain is about contribution. If the first mountain is elitist moving up, the second mountain is egalitarian, planting yourself amid those who need and walking arm in arm with them. And so different people move to the second mountain at different times of life. And yes, there are things that throw us there like a divorce or a cancer diagnosis or losing a friend. And we get there and we're like, gosh, there's gotta be more to life than this. Grinding it out, working every day, checking your portfolio, seeing how the stock market is doing. There's gotta be more meaning. There's gotta be more purpose. There's gotta be something deeper that matters. But there are people who spend their entire lives on the first mountain and they just don't think anything of it. It's what we do, right? This is one of the most affluent parts of Nashville. It's what we do. We make money. We get promotions. But yet that's not what life's about. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not what life's about. Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon writes this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. If two lie together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You see, family, with all of its blessings and challenges, actually matters on both mountains of life. Even though I think sometimes people that are on the second mountain of life really see that more. They get that more. But there's a few things that, that I want to kind of leave you with today when it comes to family life and dynamics, because I think these things matter, okay? And I'm gonna leave you with these thoughts. The first one is this. Family life is not perfect and we can't expect for it to be. It's challenging, it's messy. Things will happen that we don't see coming. People will not live up to our expectations and we won't live up to theirs, uh, but we have to keep trying. We have to keep making the effort. Giving up on family should not be an option. So no matter what happens, no matter what happens, no matter how bad it is, we have to keep trying. Secondly, I think we need to pay close attention to the recipe that Paul has laid out for us here in Colossians. What is it? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Compassion for the fact that our spouses and our family members are all carrying some kind of burden. Kindness when we are interacting and speaking to each other. Um, my friend uh, Brad Joya, the headmaster, he says, kindness is a completely underrated virtue. It matters. Humility, so that we don't pretend that we are always right. Meekness, by showing quiet strength, which involves being present and showing up. Patience, when we're frustrated and angry. Love, which holds everything together and gets us through the hard times. That is the recipe that we find in Colossians, and it's a recipe that works because it's grounded in Jesus Christ. Because when things are, these things are not present in our families, we start to have problems. We start to see the tension and the resentment and the distance. Third, there are things that we need to intentionally avoid in our family relationships. What are they? I'll name four. Criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling and contempt. 
That's what marriage therapist John Gottman says. He calls them the four horsemen. Anytime these things come into a relationship or family life, we have problems. And of the four, the biggest one is contempt. That's the toxic one. Once contempt sneaks into a marriage or a family and it's not unpacked and dealt with, it grows and it festers and it gets worse. So we have to make sure that when something happens that's going to lead to contempt and resentment, that we unpack it, that we deal with it. Um, and, and so communication is important and forgiveness is important. And, 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 and not leaving things unresolved from the past is important. Um, some families just like to sweep things under the rug and pretend like it never happened. But usually it comes back out at the wrong time in the wrong place, oftentimes at a wedding or funeral, so I get to see it. But you have to deal with it. Honesty and conversation matters. Civility and listening matters. Try to keep those things out of your family. Lastly this morning, we need to remember that no matter what our family goes through, no matter how hard it might be, healing is always possible. You know, Jesus was a healer. And so as, as a Christian, I can only conclude that, that the church and church members, we're called to help each other heal, right? And trust me, I realize that there are some deep, deep wounds in families. I get it. I've seen it. Um, it's not easy or simple sometimes. And so healing, you know, might be a process. And you might not heal to the degree that you would like, but I promise you it can get better over time if we work at it. So sometimes it's an honest conversation that you need to have and you've been putting it off. And yes, it might be uncomfortable, but you're, you're not going to make any progress until you have the conversation. And sometimes when we have the conversation, we find out that it wasn't nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be because maybe the other person wanted to have the conversation too. There are lots of different stages to healing, but I think the first step is just to acknowledge that something is wrong, that it needs to be addressed. Some things in life will go away by themselves, but many things won't. And so pretending that the issue isn't there is usually not a good solution. So my guess is, to close this morning, some of you here this morning have something that you need to talk to your spouse, your parent, your sibling, your child about. And so I would just say, why keep putting it off? Why not have that conversation and then move forward on the path of healing? Don't just pretend like it's not there. Address it, and then what you might find is that you will be happier and more content if you do. Amen.